page 552, question 95. This is the section of the Catechism that begins the explanation of the Ten Commandments. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. I memorized this, of course, in the rendition of the Catechism I'm familiar with, so I'm going to try to quote it correctly. If I misquote it from your perspective, it's because I'm quoting it from what I remember from our rendition of it. Let's sing now from Psalm 115. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ahab was the seventh king of the northern kingdom of Israel. He reigned from, seven, from 874 to 852 BC. He was the son of Omri, who had been the most wicked king who ruled over Israel until that time. However, Ahab was even more wicked than his father Omri had been. He solidified his relationship with the Phoenicians by marrying Jezebel, the fanatical daughter of Ethbaal, the priest king of Tyre. Pagan Jezebel championed the worship of Baal, and she exercised very strong influence upon King Ahab. As king, he not only practiced the idolatry of serving the golden calf, but he also worshiped Baal. Moreover, Ahab lived as a tyrant, and Jezebel murdered the true prophets of Yahweh. This critical point in history of Israel, God raised up courageous Elijah as his prophet in order to confront Ahab and the kingdom of Israel with their wickedness and to summon the Israelites to turn from their wicked ways. As we consider our text in conjunction with Question and answer 95, and consider the contest which Yahweh commanded Elijah to have with the prophets on Mount Carmel. Our sermon theme will be, Who is Israel's true God? We'll have four main points. First, the Israelites' idolatrous corruption. Second, Elijah's rebuking challenge. Third, Baal's prophets' chaos. And fourth, Yahweh's stupendous conquest. First, the Israelites' idolatrous corruption. Jeroboam I was the first king of the new kingdom of Israel, and he set the precedent which all the following kings of Israel followed to their spiritual ruin. Failing to trust in Yahweh, he feared that if the people of the northern kingdom of Israel would return to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, that their allegiance would turn to King Rehoboam, 
of the southern kingdom of Judah. So he caused two golden calves to be made and said to the people of Israel, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Very similar to the words that the Israelites spoke at Mount Sinai after Aaron had constructed the golden calf. What blasphemous words and actions. Jeroboam set up one golden calf way in the north of the nation at Dan, and he set up the other golden calf at, at Bethel near the southern part of the nation, 19 kilometers north of Jerusalem. Jeroboam instituted a new priesthood instead of from the descendants of Aaron. He established a new religious calendar, and the calves became false gods of the nation. Yahweh God had placed the people of Israel in a covenant relationship with him. They were exclusively to serve and to worship Yahweh, the only true God, as the first commandment so clearly teaches. God would be their God, and the people of Israel would be his chosen people. They were to love, obey, worship, serve, trust in, and fear him. Moses told the Israelites, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Nevertheless, after Joshua's death, the succeeding generations of Israelites tended to be consistent, rebellious idolaters. They refused to love, fear, obey, serve, and worship Yahweh with all their heart. They willingly and gladly worshiped the false gods of the nations around them as well as of the peoples whom they still left alive in the land of Canaan. A Heidelberg Catechism Answer 25 states, idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. So the covenant people of God became intense covenant breakers, wicked idolaters. They became very corrupt morally, living in rebellion against God. They were a lot like the people of Canada today serving all kinds of false gods, but rejecting and ignoring the only true, living, eternal, triune God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Canadians serve materialism as a god. Material things are the most important and most valuable thing in this life. Pragmatism. To be brief in defining it, if something works, that means it's right. So you adhere to that philosophy. Humanism. Man is at the center. God is ignored. The supernatural is forgotten about. Man is the one who has the power and who makes the choices. Hedonism. The God of pleasure. And moral relativism. Something may be right for one person, but that doesn't make it right for somebody else. 
what is uh, important and what really is considered as morally relevant for one person doesn't necessarily mean it's morally relevant or applicable to somebody else at all. Secondly, Elijah's rebuking challenge, as we read in verses 19 through 24. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for your many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. God sovereignly caused Elijah, the prophet, to appear on the scene of Israelite history at this time of spiritual crisis. He boldly confronted King Ahab and commanded him to gather the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who were supported, provided for by Jezebel, to bring them to Mount Carmel, as well as the people of Israel. It seems that wicked Ahab cooperated with Elijah's command because he was hoping that Elijah would cause it to rain. It possibly took Ahab a few days in order to gather, send for and gather the Israelites to Mount Carmel. Although the 450 prophets came to Mount Carmel, it's not certain at all that the 400 prophets of Asherah did because they are no longer mentioned in this chapter. Mount Carmel was a very suitable place for this contest. It juts out into the water along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. The eastern extremity of Mount Carmel is raised about 1,000 feet above the surrounding adjoining plain. The events there could be seen by all the spectators. Furthermore, a sort of plateau, and boys and girls, that means sort of a flat area, near the summit of the mountain where the altars were constructed, would accommodate a large number of spectators. Moreover, a spring of water was nearby, less than 100 yards away, so less than 300 feet away, which flowed even in the driest of seasons. So that would prove to be Elijah's water source for the soaking of the wood and the sacrifice. On the day of the contest, Elijah ignored the king and strongly rebuked and directly challenged the gathered Israelite people. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. 
And the word Lord is the Hebrew word for God, Yahweh, which stresses the unchangeableness of God in relation to his people. And the Hebrew word translated as limp is used figuratively. King Ahab had been treating Yahweh and Baal as peers, as equals. Ahab was spiritually blind and he practiced idolatry with intensity. Because of the influence of Jezebel and Ahab, because she was actually the power, human power behind the throne, the Israelite people had become indecisive. Many Israelites worshipped Baal. A few still worshipped Yahweh. They had been like the proverbial statement of trying to walk on a fence with one leg on each side of it. Now, boys and girls, if you try to walk on a fence with one leg on one side and one leg on the other, you're not going to be doing that for very long. It'll be too difficult to do. You'll give it up. God's prophet was challenging God's covenant people to get off the fence. He was telling them that they could not serve both Yahweh and Baal. This was similar to Jesus' words in Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be, be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, in other words, God and money or riches. Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Likewise, do we as Christians attempt to love and serve Jesus along with something or someone else? Money material possessions, family, pleasures, sex, our employment, beauty, our house or apartment, our computer, our vehicle or vehicles, or our machinery or equipment. The Bible says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to graven, or in other words, carved images. God is a jealous God. He even says in scripture that his name is jealous. He does not tolerate shared time or shared devotion with any false God. Nabil Qureshi wrote the book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He was a Muslim who over a period of several years investigated the teaching of the Quran and the Hadith. He also investigated the claims of Christianity. Gradually, with much inner turmoil, he became convinced that Allah is not a true God and that Muhammad definitely was not an honorable man. 
He became convinced that the Bible is true, and he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal salvation. He became convinced that the triune creator of heaven and earth is the only true living God. He became involved in ministry with Ravi Zacharias. Maybe some of you have heard of him. Trying to spread the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. And it's an interesting book to read. Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Only one God is worthy of our supreme devotion and of our wholehearted love, obedience, worship, and wholehearted service. And he is the true God, the eternal creator of the heavens and the earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Part of Elijah's challenge was that he proposed a contest between the 450 prophets of Baal and himself. Ultimately, the contest was between God and the devil. He and the false prophets, according to the rules that Elijah gave, would each be given a young bull. They were to cut up the bull, lay the bull in pieces on an altar, but put no fire under it. Baal's prophets were then to call on the name of Baal, asking him to send fire and to consume the sacrifice. Elijah was to do the same, calling upon Yahweh to send fire and consume the sacrifice. The God who answered by fire, he would show that he was the God whom the Israelites were to love, worship, obey, and serve. Baal is pictured on sculpture as the God who grasps the thunderbolt with his left hand. His worshipers claim that Baal was the sun god and lord of the elements and forces of nature. Ancient tablets praised Baal as the god who has power over rain, wind, clouds, and therefore fertility. The gathered people of Israel agreed to the rules of the contest. So the 450 gathered prophets of Baal had no choice but to engage in the contest. Thirdly, Baal's prophets chaos in verses 25 through 29. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of God from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. 
Elijah allowed the false prophets of Baal to take their turn first. Boys and girls, the 450 prophets of Baal took the young bull, which had been allotted to them. They cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood that was on the altar. And they put no fire under it in keeping with the rules of the contest. Starting in the morning, maybe as early as 9 o'clock already or so, they began to pray to Baal and to cry out, Oh, Baal, answer us! Just imagine 450 men, possibly robed in special vestments, in other words, special robes or clothes, crying out continually from morning until noon and begging, asking Baal to answer them. What confusion there was, and what a pitiable scene. How sad, how spiritually blind such idolatry was. The Bible says they lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith, and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves, and boys and girls, that means they fall, them, fall down flat on their faces. They prostrate themselves, yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder, they carry it and set it in its place, and it stands. From its place it shall not move. The one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer, nor save him out of his trouble. Understandably, there was no answer. So the prophets limped about in their dance around the altar which they had made. Baal was a false god, a wicked invention of man's depraved mind. He could not answer their cries. At noon, Elijah mocked the 450 prophets of Baal, saying that they should cry out with a loud voice, After all, Baal's a god. He mockingly told them that Baal could be meditating, or he might be busy, or he could be gone on a journey, or he might even be sleeping and needed to be awakened. For Elijah knew that Yahweh was the only true God, almighty, all-knowing, sovereign, who is able to do whatever he wills. Then, boys and girls, in their desperation, these prophets of the false god Baal cut themselves as they customarily did with swords and with lances. And a lance is a weapon consisting of a long wooden shaft with a spearhead on it, sharp metal spearhead. The men cut themselves until the blood gushed out upon them, so it was just rushing out of them. They worked themselves up into an ecstatic frenzy. Imagine how strange that must have looked and sounded to be raving on as they did for hours. What disorder and confusion there was. All the while they were crying out to Baal until the time for the offering of the evening burnt offering which God commanded the Aaronic priests to offer each evening to him. They noisily cried out, they yelled, and leaped about maybe for eight or more hours. 
Imagine the bizarre, pathetic scene. There was a group of utterly deceived false prophets crying out to a God who did not exist to do something which no false God is able to do because all false gods are worthless. They are futile, vanity, vain, useless. As our text says, there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. These false prophets obviously were sincere in their prayers to Baal. But they were sincerely wrong. Young people and boys and girls, it's possible to be sincere about serving a false god, but to be sincerely and eternally wrong. It's possible to be sincere about serving a false god, but to be heading toward the destruction of hell. For example, unconverted unconverted Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, communists, Jews, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Catholics, and so on. I trust that The vast majority of all of these are sincere. But they're sincerely wrong. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Well, may each of us be among those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and who are on the narrow path which leads to eternal life. Fourthly, Yahweh's stupendous conquest. We read in verses 30 and then 33 through 40. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal 
let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Boys and girls, the word stupendous means astounding, amazing. And conquest means victory. God is the only true God, and he very clearly revealed that to the Israelite people. Elijah told the assembled people to come near to him, and they did so. On Mount Carmel, there had been, had been an altar to Yahweh, but as the nation became increasingly idolatrous, that altar had been thrown down. Elijah repaired that broken-down altar. He dug a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two seers of seed. One of my Bible encyclopedias says that a seer possibly was 6.6 dry quartz. He put the wood in order on the stone altar, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he commanded that four jars be filled with water and poured on the sacrifice and on the wood. They did it. He commanded that four water jars be filled again and be poured on the, the sacrifice, the bull, and on the wood. They did that. He commanded that they do it a third time, and they did it a third time. Just imagine how soaking wet the bull, the wood, and even the stones were becoming by that time. In obedience to what Yahweh had commanded him, Elijah was making the bull and wood so wet that they would be difficult to burn. Then Elijah prayed to Yahweh, Israel's covenant God. His prayer was simple, bold, expectant, humble, and believing. Simple, bold, expectant, humble, and believing. He realized that he was praying to the living, only true, triune God, the covenant God of Israel, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who is merciful and gracious, who is faithful to his covenant. Elijah prayed that Yahweh would make it known that day that he is God in Israel, that Elijah was his servant, and that all that Elijah had done, he had done in obedience to what Yahweh had commanded him to do. So he was taking his work as prophet upon God's positive answer to his prayer. God's prophet was concerned about God's glory, and he wanted God's name to be glorified by what God did. Jesus' desire was that his suffering and death would glorify God. He prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. And what about us? Are we primarily concerned about glorifying our triune God? Or do we have a major concern that we be praised and honored? That we be recognized and receive the accolades or the praise? In addition, Elijah prayed that the Israelites would know that Yahweh had been 
had turned their heart back to him. He was praying that the Israelites would know that God had been working spiritual reform in their lives. Then there was an amazing answer from God to Elijah's prayer. The fire of the Lord came down, and it literally consumed the pieces of the bull, the wood, the stones, the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench so that that was gone as well. God was the overwhelming victor in that contest, just as he is the overwhelming victor victor in any contest with anyone who tries to engage him in any kind of battle. Boys and girls, imagine lightning coming down and burning up water that is in a ditch or in a trench. Just imagine the fire of God burning up stones having that kind of power. What a wondrous, miraculous answer that was to Elijah's prayer. The people who witnessed this miraculous answer fell on their faces, and they cried out twice, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. The evidence was so obvious it couldn't be misunderstood. People as spectators saw clearly that Yahweh and not any idol was truly God. Baal was not God at all, nor was any man-made God truly God. And then in keeping with God's command, Elijah caused the 450 prophets of Baal to be executed, put to death that day. Moreover, he prayed for rain, and God abundantly sent abundant rain in answer to his prayer after three and a half years of famine and drought. So what is the point of all this? Our sovereign God raised up and sent prophets to his covenant-breaking people in order to bring God's word of warning and of judgment and to encourage repentance from sin at critical times in the history of his covenant people. Elijah the prophet was God's messenger to wayward Israel, to turn back, to repent, to love God, to turn from their idolatry and gross wickedness, to obey Yahweh, who loved his people and had shown his faithfulness to them throughout preceding generations. We see God's great patience and his long-suffering through the ministry of Elijah, calling sinful Israel to repent and come back to God. Elijah pointed centuries forward to God's chief prophet and revealer, namely Jesus Christ, the chief prophet and teacher, God's incarnate son. The Apostle John wrote, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God's beloved Son took upon himself our flesh and blood, like us in all respects except for sin. He was completely obedient to the Father, 
Jesus came to give his life as a ransom, as the substitutionary offering for our sins, the only acceptable payment for all of the sins of all God's elect throughout all of human history. Jesus suffered and died as our substitute on the cross in order to suffer God's punishment for our sins. God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Scripture says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, dear people of God, through Jesus Christ, we experience and receive God's abounding mercy, grace, and love. Jesus, the promised Messiah, summoned the Jews of his day to repent of their sins and to believe in him. And I read in John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, he came to his own and his own received him not. Some Jews believed in him, many did not. Through the Holy Spirit, Christ also summons us, calls us to repent of our sins and to believe in him as Savior and Lord for eternal life. And when we believe in Jesus, God makes a transformation that is amazing. He declares us righteous before him. He imputes or credits the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our accounts. We have peace with God. The enmity and separation between us and God is gone. And that forever. We have eternal life. We have the forgiveness of sins. We are adopted sons and daughters of God. And we're blessed to be members of Christ's church. Christ's body. Does each person gathered here truly believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and have you truly repented of your sins initially? Lots of people believe about Jesus but don't necessarily believe in Jesus. It's possible to believe all kinds of biblical facts and truths about Jesus, but not to believe in Jesus, not to put the full weight of our trust in him that because he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for my sins, and therefore God forgives me for my sins. We also need to repent of our sins. The Bible says, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And to repent is not just to feel badly that we did something wrong. To repent is to have genuine sorrow that we have sinned against the living, holy God. And to want to turn from those sins, not only to turn from those sins, but to turn to Jesus Christ. Humbly and genuinely. And then we are to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Both Savior and Lord. Paul wrote that he had 
said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 that he had gone about teaching faith toward God and forget just I'm, I'm missing it right now faith in our Lord Jesus Christ repentance from sin and faith toward our toward God that had been his message it included repentance and truly believing in Jesus as Lord the Bible says but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us now is the day of salvation Tomorrow may be eternally too late. The Bible says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I've conducted many funerals during my years of ministry and years of even retirement. But some of those funerals, there was a very resounding confession of Jesus Christ. I've also conducted funerals for unbelievers. And what a word of difference that is. They have absolutely no hope. They have tears, but they're, they're tears of helplessness. Not tears of joy as well as loss. In Christ we have the blessing of being God's adopted sons and daughters. Jesus is the center focus of human history. Christ suffered as the only high priest to atone for our sins. He was buried and then the third day he rose from the dead. Forty days later he ascended into heaven and God rules all things through his ascended Enthroned Son. Our sovereign, always holy God is bringing all things in this vast universe to their culmination, to their consummation point. Namely, Jesus' second coming and the final judgment. The devil and all of God's enemies will be totally and forever defeated. And Before Christ's ascension into heaven, he commanded and entrusted to his disciples and therefore also to us as members of his church to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Christ had commanded. Our mission as Christians is to live for the furtherance of God's church and kingdom, to live for the glory of our awesome God, we have the blessed and living hope by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we will receive our promised heavenly inheritance. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment. He's the first installment. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit so that we shall receive with certainty our promised heavenly inheritance. We shall be members of the new Jerusalem. And we have the immense blessedness of being sinless, living in God's glorious presence for all future eternity. Therefore, may our earnest prayers be. May we live so that we give glory to you 
the only true God, our God. And come again, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.